Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you want to uh, pronounce it. This is like a Bible drill, so you can find uh, the book the fastest. But our sermon text this morning is Habakkuk verses uh, 1 through 4, Habakkuk 2, 1 through 4. And as, our, as is our custom, out of respect for the word of God, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the, of the, the word of God this morning. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Give ear to the reading of God's word. It says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing once again upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your scriptures. We thank you for... Uh, all, all of the books of your Bible. Thank you for the book of Habakkuk and what it tells us about Christ, your son, and the gospel. And we ask again that you would be pleased to work in us by your spirit, that you would uh, work in us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, I already mentioned today is uh, Reformation Sunday, so-called, and that this, this particular uh, month on the 31st marks the 500th anniversary Uh, of what is often normally thought of as the beginning or the start of the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther attacking those 95 theses on the door of that church uh, at the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, And what we're doing is uh, today we're going to spend, this will be the second Sunday of two that we've spent looking at the kind of the the doctrine of justification from the Old Testament. In other words, I, I, I kind of looked at some of the New Testament books and how Paul and others quote what verses they look to to demonstrate and prove the doctrine of justification in the gospel of Christ. And they look at a lot of, a lot of other places too, but the two that he seems to, to latch on to and repeat more than once, last week as we saw with Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed God and he, God, accounted it to him as righteousness. Paul uses that at least twice to prove justification by faith. Well, he does it also with our text this morning from the book of Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse, verse 4. We're going to see that from this, this book here, this little tiny book in the Minor Prophets, that uh, in many ways it deals with what's the kind of the central doctrine of the Reformation, and that is justification by faith. Now, Habakkuk is, uh, might be, to, to a lot of us, kind of an obscure book. It's not the one that you probably first think of when you think, oh, you know, let's talk about justification. Where do I go? You think Romans, Galatians, you know, somewhere else. But we don't often think of the book of, of Habakkuk. But it's, it's in this little verse, in this little book, in this almost at the end of the Old Testament, that the, the, the Apostle Paul quoted, and, and someone else along with him, together quoted at least three times in the New Testament. This one little, really half of this verse is quoted at least three times in the New Testament dealing with the gospel. And so this minor prophet played kind of a major role in the apostolic teaching of the gospel of Christ and the doctrine of justification. And so not only on top of that, but you think of, of Martin Luther, you might know that Romans 1.17, one of the places where Paul quotes this verse, 
Romans 1.17 is the verse that God used in his good providence to convert Martin Luther, to save Martin Luther. And, and really, saving Martin Luther started the Reformation, and that really affected all of history. So this one little verse tucked away in the book of Habakkuk is, is really one of the, the things that you could say was the spark. I mean, you could say it was Paul's quotation of it, but it was still based on Habakkuk 2.4. It was kind of the spark that lit the entire Protestant Reformation and really changed all of world history as we know it, all from this one little verse tucked away, part of one verse tucked away in the Old Testament. Well, before we just jumped right into what the New Testament has to say, you know, it's, it's nice to have the New Testament's inspired commentary on our text. You know, I, I tend to look at commentaries as I'm studying and kind of see if I'm off in left field somewhere or if everybody's in agreement on a certain thing. Well, those things aren't inspired. They may be helpful, uh, they certainly are very often. Sometimes they're not. But we have the New Testament's inspired commentary on the Old Testament of this text. But before we jump right into that, which is always a temptation, I thought we should spend some time looking at what the passage itself has to say in its own context. What, is, what does Habakkuk have to say himself? What's the context of this one little verse? Habakkuk, as you can probably tell, was a prophet. It's what he calls himself in verse 1 of chapter 1. He served the Lord in the region of Judah, as far as we know, around 600 B.C. So, you know, that's, that's maybe not even 15 years before the Babylonians came and carted off everybody into captivity. The Babylonians is who he's talking about in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, when the Lord tells Habakkuk, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. This would not have been good news for Habakkuk to hear. He would not have been very pleased by that. But, but that's, that's the, the setting here is God is raising up the Chaldeans to come chastise his people and carry them off into captivity in Babylon. Now, Habakkuk's a pretty short book. You might know that some of the prophets are called the major prophets and some are called the minor prophets. Habakkuk is one of the latter, not because he's unimportant, but because he's, it's shorter. It's only three chapters. Isaiah is 66 chapters long, so he's a major prophet, a bigger prophet. doesn't mean he's more important by any stretch of the imagination, but... He's a, a prophet there. Uh, it's a short book. It's three, three chapters long. And if you want a, a summary, we're going to kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of the whole book, if that's okay this morning. Really what Habakkuk is, if you want to boil it all down, it's Habakkuk complaining to the Lord. You can do that. Uh, and the Lord's answers back to Habakkuk. That's, that's, that's the give and take. If you want, to, <coughs> if you want to imagine a give and take with, with the Almighty God, that's what Habakkuk and the Lord are doing in this book. And What's the first thing in Habakkuk that he cries out and complains to the Lord about? He complained, the very first thing he complains about is in chapter 1, the, the early verses of chapter 1, and he complains about the ungodliness, the, the wickedness among the people of Israel, among God's people himself. That's, that's his first complaint. In other words, picture him you know, as a pastor, although he was more than that, he was a prophet, Basically saying uh, to God, hey, you know, I'm doing my job. I'm paraphrasing, you know, I'm preaching to these people your truths. I'm praying for them. I'm praying for revival. He, he sees the writing on the wall, no pun intended. I mean, he sees bad things to come. He knows what happens when God's people uh, persist in wickedness. God, God, God does not see that, does not watch that kind of thing uh, and not ever do anything. He chastises. He, it, will, it even brings judgment. Well, he knows that's the case. That's half, the, half of the prophetic ministry was warning people to, to repent and warning them of the judgment that was 
to come. And so look at Habakkuk 1, verses 2 to 4. This is his first complaint. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? In other words, he's praying. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. In other words, he's saying there's a remnant here. There's a remnant of the godly, the faithful in in the Lord here in Israel, but it's as if they're surrounded by the wicked in their own land. The wicked wicked among God's people, so to speak, are outnumbering the remnant of of the faithful in God's people. And so he's he's going to the Lord and saying, "This, this should not be. This should not be the case. This is not how things ought to be. To him, it seemed as if God wasn't answering. You can, you know, I don't know about you, but if you ever find yourself struggling with the problem of evil and why does God allow this and that, um, well, you're in good company, right? Even a prophet of the Lord had to to climb up in his tower and and look to God in, in prayer over such a thing. He'd been crying out to God, but what was happening? The wickedness was increasing, It didn't seem like God was answering his prayers. Justice could not be found. He was made, he says in verse 3, to see iniquity. And even violence. He uses the word violence more than once. There's iniquity and then there's iniquity. And he was seeing violence among the people. uh, Help didn't seem to be coming forward from God. And so he asks God in verse 3, you know, basically, you're a just and holy God. How can you sit idly by and look at wrong and not do anything? That's what it seemed like to the prophet. And so what does God tell Habakkuk? He tells him, basically, I'm not sitting idly by and watching. You got this whole thing wrong. You think I'm not doing anything. Oh, I'm doing something. I'm doing something that you'd never believe if someone were to tell you is what he tells him. Look at verses 5 to 6 of chapter 1. He tells the prophet, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. You know, we we always use, you're never going to believe this. Look what he's telling the prophet. You're you're just never going to believe what what I'm doing. And then what what does he tell him? He says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. When he said, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, Habakkuk knew exactly what God was saying. He wasn't just giving him, a, you know, a, um, oh, you know, by the way, just in case you're curious, there's some nation over here and I'm, I'm, I'm building them up. He knew God raising them up was raising them up for a purpose. And it was one of those purposes was to chastise his own, his own people. God's answer to Habakkuk's prayers was to raise up the Chaldeans. As strange as it may sound, as hard as that may be to believe and to accept, that's what he tells him. In other words, God tells him, I'm raising up the Babylonians, if that makes it a little more clear and stark. So it's safe to say that's, that's the last thing that Habakkuk thought he was going to hear. It was certainly the last thing that he hoped. He wasn't hoping to hear that. He was hoping to hear anything but, but that. Now, who are the Babylonians? If you're not familiar with them, they were a ruthless and powerful and godless nation. They were a nation of a people of violence, he says in verse 9. They were a people bent on world conquest and domination. 
of all the, the, the land. They were a pagan, godless people, he says in verse 11, whose might was their God. In other words, they're godless. Their God was themselves. They saw themselves as the king of everything and that everybody needed to bow the knee to them and they were going to conquer and go forth and take whatever they could by their might and by the might of their military. Now, as you can imagine, that brought up a whole new set of questions for Habakkuk, a whole new set of complaints to God, which is what he did. And if you, if you were to look at Habakkuk verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 12, all the way through verse 1 of chapter 2, this is Habakkuk saying, whoa, 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 you know, uh, what about this? You know, how, how, how can this possibly be? So he complains a second time, and he says in verse 12 that he, he knows, he understands that God had raised up the Chaldeans as a, quote, as a judgment against Judah. And he says in verse 12 that he knew that God had, quote, established them, the Chaldeans, for reproof. He knew exactly what God said he was doing. He understood what God was, was telling him. But then you, you can imagine, you can sympathize with him. He's saying to himself and to the Lord, how can that possibly be? How can God do such a thing? How could God allow, not just allow that to happen, but how can God ordain that to happen? You know, God doesn't tell him, hey, uh, you know, Habakkuk, there's this thing that's going to happen and I'm going to let it happen. But it's, I'm, you know, I, I could probably stop it, but, I, you know, I don't want to override their wills. He's saying, I'm raising them up for this purpose doesn't mean that what they did wasn't going to be sinful and they weren't going to be judged for it, but he's saying he's going to use their sin. He's going to use the Chaldeans, even in their wickedness, to chastise his own people. And so what does Habakkuk go on to say in prayer in verse 13 of chapter 1? He says to God that, you know, God, surely you are, quote, of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. You can't just idly look at sin, right? And that's, that's, surely that's what this would be. It's as if God was going to look at sin idly. And it says, you know, how could you, quote, remain silent when the wicked, that's the Chaldeans in this case, swallows up the man more righteous than he? You see what he's saying? He's saying, you know, we're bad. They're worse. I mean, if we're bad and you want to judge us and chastise us, you know, I, I get it. But they're, they're, they're really bad. They're way worse than us. How could you possibly not just judge us, but judge us by them. It makes the, the sting a little bit, really a lot, a lot worse. How could God possibly ordain to use the Chaldeans, the wicked Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to punish the more righteous, in, in a sense, the Israelites? He's not saying, notice what he's not saying. He's not saying you're using the wicked to punish the righteous. His whole prayer in the first chapter, the first part of it is saying, we aren't righteous. We, he knows they deserve what they're going to get in this, in this chastisement. But he says, how can you use the more wicked to chastise the more, relatively speaking, the more righteous Israelites? He couldn't, he couldn't fathom how God could do such a thing. And as you can imagine, it, it, it greatly troubled him. And so he looked to God in prayer. Again, have you ever felt that way about anything? Have you ever looked at God's providence? in your life or in someone else's life and thought, how, how can God allow that to happen? I mean, you, you watch the news over the last month or six months, you know, the storms, the shooting in Las Vegas, and you think, how on earth can a good God, a just God, allow something like that to happen? Well, that's the same kind of wrestling that Habakkuk, who was a prophet, 
who saw visions from God wrestled with in this, in this particular context. What did you do in those times when you felt that way? How did you respond? Did you complain against God on account of it? People do that. People complain against God. Uh, many choose to do that. That's what scoffers and skeptics often do. They sit in judgment upon God as if they could know, possibly know better than God. Now, who's omniscient and who's not? Who knows all things and who doesn't? You know, for me, for instance, if I'm going to question God's providence, you know, question meaning you know, criticize it and accuse it, I would have to know everything to know all the things that God knows as part of his plan. I would have to know exactly how God is going to use it for good, what his ultimate purposes are. And we, you know, this isn't the Wizard of Oz. God doesn't pull the curtain back and say, Psst, okay, you know, come over here and look over my shoulder and I'll, you know, show you. And now you get, now he does that in a bigger sense with the gospel, right? We know the end, from, we know the end in the book of Revelation, but he doesn't tell us all of his purposes ahead of time uh, very often, if, if at all. Um, and so we, we have to be careful about complaining about God and scoffing at his just judgments and his wisdom other people often stick their head in the sand. That's, I think that might be the more, popular, the more popular option among many people in our land today. You know, they distract themselves with all kinds of things, all kinds of entertainments. You might know the word amusement, you know, an amusement park. What does the word amusement mean? I heard a pastor tell, say this many, many years ago that, well, to muse is to think. And so to be amused, the, the, the letter A in front of it is, it's a negative. So it's to not think. It's to get your mind off things. That's what an amusement park does. It's what amusements do. They take our minds off of things. And so very often people just find ways to take their minds off these questions and just not deal with them. You know, hope they'll go away if I ignore them, that, that kind of a thing. And we, we might live in the most distracted age in world history in our land with our so-called smartphones and whatnot. So people often do that. Or do you do what Habakkuk did in your, in your past dealings and, and wrestlings with God's providence? Did you do what Habakkuk did? Did you, did you look to God in prayer? Do you pray? I mean, even complain to God. You know, there's a difference. There's a big difference between complaining about God and complaining to God. Complaining to God, God seems to be okay with, as long as you're praying to him in faith. He's, he's, we, you know, it's like the, the book of Hebrews talks about we have a sympathetic high priest. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailties and infirmities. He knows what it feels like to be a human being on this earth, although he, not, not with, he never sinned, right? Um, you know, God, God in his grace and kindness often allows us to complain to him as long as we're not complaining about him. And so Habakkuk prayed uh, and he sought God's answer to his prayer. In fact, in verse 1 of chapter 2, what does he say? He says he's going to, quote, take his stand at his watch post. I, some of you spent time in the military like I did. You know what a watch post is. Not, not your favorite thing in the world to be stuck on a watch post. You can't go anywhere. You're not supposed to talk to anybody. You have to watch. Your job is to watch. And your job is to stay right where you are. You don't get to go take a coffee break. You know, you, you're, you're the security. You're the one that's supposed to sound the alarm if something happens. He was to take a stand at the watch post, and he says he was going to station himself on the tower to wait and watch for God's answers to his complaint. In other words, did he expect a really fast answer? Did he expect God to just, you know, again, pull the curtain back and, okay, have a cook, you know, you, 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 you prayed, and here it is. And he's like, however long it takes, I'm going to sit in my watchtower, and I'm going to watch, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to wait, 
and I'm going to pray some more. You know, sometimes the answer to these tough questions comes only after much persistence in prayer and waiting upon the Lord. Faith, faith doesn't mean you don't have questions. Faith means you're willing to trust God at his word, even if you don't understand what he's doing. Faith is willing to pray and faith is willing to wait and to persevere in prayer, waiting upon the Lord and his answer. Have you ever had to pray and wait like that? I'm sure that you probably have. Many things you've probably prayed for for years and years to the point where you're, you almost want to give up and say, what is God doing? Lord, what are you doing? How come I'm having to wait this long for the salvation of a loved one or some such thing? But sometimes we have to wait and pray and wait upon God's providence, no matter how perplexing it might be, and wait for his answer. And that's what Habakkuk did. That's what we are being told, I think, to do here as, as well, to wait on God in prayer. So if your troubles and your troubling questions get you praying, and even if God you know, causes them to, to lead you to have to persevere in prayer, ultimately, they don't do you any harm, but do you much good. It does, you know, bad things that get us praying ultimately don't harm us at all. Even they get us looking to the Lord who can answer all of our prayers and do all things. Well, what's the Lord's answer this time? How did God answer Habakkuk's prayer about, about the Chaldeans? But how could God possibly do such a thing? Now, he does give him an answer later in the chapter, a direct answer, but he gives this answer first. Look at verses 2 through 4. It says, Habakkuk writes, And the Lord answered me. We don't know how long he waited in that tower, but the Lord answered him. And this is what God said. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, notice the first thing that he tells him here. This vision wasn't just for Habakkuk, was it? It, it, was to answer his, it was to answer his question and his complaint, but it wasn't just for his benefit. He told him to write it down. Take a memo, Habakkuk. Write this. You might want to write this down so you don't forget what I'm about to say. In other words, he's saying this is going to be important. You might not want to let this one slip. You might not want to forget this one. Write it down. Write the vision. So this, this wasn't just for him. This was for anybody else in Israel who would listen. This was a message he was to proclaim and publish to anyone who would hear him. And that goes for us as well. This message is for us in a very real sense as well. And not only was he to write it down, but what does he say in verse 2? Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. How, how plain would it have to be for you to be able to run and read it? He's saying put this in big fat type, in bold print. No small type here. No long winding paragraphs here. Make this the headliner. Make it so somebody can read it from a mile away kind of, kind of thing. And when he says there's somebody running who reads it, the word run there it's, it's, uh, or reading there is, is like reading it out loud. He's not saying, you know, like we think of running, we think of somebody going for exercise, you know, jogging and they've got their, we think of a tablet, we think of an iPad or something. He's not saying, you know, somebody wants to be able to read a book while they're running. He's saying this is a messenger who's talking about running. And he wants this messenger to be able to yell this message out while he's running with the message. 
In other words, it can't be long and drawn out. It can't be hard to, to read. It's got to be short and to the point and clear and plain so the messenger can go out uh, with the message. It's kind of like if uh, you kids and everybody else has had U.S. history and you think of Paul Reveal's Paul, Paul Revere's ride. Can't even say it, right? The Midnight Ride. What did Paul Revere say on the horseback? So, to, so they say, the British are coming. Short into the to, to sweep to the point. Everybody knew when they heard they were in the city of Concord. When he yelled that out, they knew the the British armies were on the move, and they had to move their supplies and and get ready. It's, it's like the it's like the smoke alarm going off. You know exactly what it means. It means you probably overcooked something, but. Uh, he's saying the British are coming. Well, it's, it's just like that. The person, the messenger, the message has to be clear and to the point so the people understand it and he can yell it out while he's running. That's, that's how urgent this is. So, you know, and just like the, the vision given to Habakkuk here has to be made plain, he says, uh, that's the way the preaching of God's word today should be as well and in all ages. God's word must be preached in a way that is clear and plain. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, writes of this verse. He says, note... Note, those who are employed in preaching the word of God should study work towards plainness as much as may be so as to make themselves intelligible to the meanest that is the most common or simple person's capacities. In other words, preaching should not be done way up here. Teaching in the church should not be done in such a way that people can't understand. If you think about the, the Reformation, the time around the Reformation, uh, could the common people even read scripture? Back then, no, they didn't. Have, they didn't have Bibles. In fact, often people that translated the scriptures into the common language of the people were executed for it. Could the people, half of them, even understand the language that was spoken in the services? It was Latin. No, they couldn't. It's the exact opposite of what God tells the prophet Habakkuk here: that our preaching should be plain, simple, not simplistic, but simple. So that everybody in the church, no matter how educated, uneducated, no matter how young or how old, could understand what was being said. And why is that such an important thing? Because the gospel is life and death. The gospel has to be made plain and clear. Sinners are dying outside of Christ every day, and they have to be warned of the just judgment of a holy God. God's judgment in condemnation for sin is much more fearful than that of any Babylonian army. And yet when it came to that army, Habakkuk was supposed to make this very clear so that somebody could run while reading it out loud. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 to 11, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And here it is, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So in verse 3, the Lord tells the prophet Habakkuk of the certainty of his, just, his judgment coming to pass upon his people. He's saying, this is, it may seem like it's going to take a while. Trust me. What I said is going to come to pass. None of God's words are going to fail. If it seems slow, he was supposed to wait for it. Because in God's, in God's appointed time, it was going to come to pass. Not a day soon, not a day later. You know, God's just judgment often seems slow and non-existence the scoffers. And what does he say to the Apostle Peter? You know, he says, they forget the flood. They forget that God has judged in the past, and he will do so again. We should look at, at things like the Babylonian captivity, like A.D. 70, like the flood, as, as proof that God does what he says he's going to do, and he does send 
judgment. Now, we come here to the heart of the matter in verse 4, and probably, uh, not probably, really one of the most important verses, or even parts of verses in all of sacred scripture, and that's Habakkuk 2.4. After telling him about his just judgment that was to come, that was not going to delay uh, through the Chaldeans, he says this, this to him in verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So what's he doing here? He's contrasting two different ways, two different ways of, of life, the way of the proud or the wicked and the way of the just or the righteous. Now, the proud or the puffed up person here in Habakkuk's day, uh, it includes the wicked inside of Israel, the ones who, who, who refuse to repent and turn back to the Lord. It also included the, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, whose might was their God. If anybody was puffed up, it was them. There's a lot of puffed up people in this passage. You've got the, the, the wicked, the unrepentant Israelites who are puffed up thinking, you know, we have, we have the temple, we have this. You know, we're good. No matter what we do, we're good. You know, we're, we're safe from everything. You know, what, what could possibly happen? God's just judgment can't possibly fall upon us. And you have the Babylonians who think that they're the kings of the earth. They're the most mightiest people in the world at the time. And what could possibly, possibly touch them? They, they worshipped idols instead of the one true and living God. And he says here in verse 4 that his soul, that kind of person's soul, is puffed up. It is not straight or upright within him. Well, this, these arrogant, this arrogant uh, puffed up nature, this also represents everybody in every age who rejects God and his word, who thinks they have no need of God, those who despise God's sure, just Judgments. What about the other way that he speaks of here in verse 4? What characterizes the way of the righteous or the just? Now, you, you know, the comparison isn't what you expect, I think, if you think about it. What, what do you expect him to say? When you expect him to say, you know, behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright. What do you expect him to contrast that with? Someone who's humble and is upright. Someone who's, who's righteous and does God's commandments, but it's not really what he says, is it? He doesn't say, behold, you know, the, the, the ones who aren't upright and the ones who really, really are, and they're so much better than these people that aren't upright, uh, have unupright souls uh, within him. The opposite of, of unbelieving pride is faith. He brings up faith. The just, if you have the King James there, it's the just shall live by faith. The just or the righteous person is the person who lives by his faith. He trusts the Lord at his word. So in Habakkuk's situation, that meant trusting God, even in the face of present or impending evil at the hands of the, Caldone, of, of the Babylonians. It meant that he had to trust God, that God knew what he was doing in all these things. God knows what he's doing. It means trusting that. It means trusting that God, as he says in Ephesians 1.11, works all things together according to the counsel of his will. God is able to make all these things that we don't understand still work together to accomplish his purposes. Romans 8.28 says that all things, he makes all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We have to trust that that is true. And also, as, as the words of Abraham, uh, we have to trust that God is the judge of all the earth, that he shall do what is right. That God's ways, although they don't make sense to us at times, all God's ways are right. 
There's a hymn that we could have sang this morning, but we didn't. It's whatever, whatever the Lord ordains is right. We may not know how it's right. We may not know why it's right or what God is going to do through these things, but we can trust that God does know what he is doing. Now, the rest of chapter 2 that we're not going to look at in depth this morning, in the rest of the chapter, what does God tell the prophet about those Chaldeans? He doesn't say, I mean, he could have said, this book could have been even shorter. He could have just said, the righteous will live by faith, trust me, exclamation point, period, the end, you know, that's it, go to the next book. But he doesn't. He actually, after telling him the more important thing, the just shall live by his faith, then he does tell them, don't think the Chaldeans are going to get off uh, without, any, without being judged. They're not, they're, I'm not using them because they're righteous. I'm not using them and ignoring their wickedness because I'm using them. They are going to be certainly judged as well. Even though he was raising them up to accomplish his own purposes, that did not excuse their wickedness. God uses the sins of wicked men. It doesn't excuse the sins of those wicked men. God is not the author of our sins. You know, the people that crucified Christ, did they get a free pass because God ordained that from before the beginning of the world? Was it a sinful act? These are hard questions. Was the, what's the most wicked act in the history of all humanity? It's not a hard one. The cross. People crucifying the Lord of glory. What's the most amazing and loving and gracious act in the history of humanity? Not by humanity, but what's the most loving act in the history of the world? The cross from God's end of things. He foreordained that for our redemption and our salvation. Same act, two different ways of looking at that same, that same event. The Chaldeans, it says there in verse 18, served speechless idols. Idols can't talk. They're the creation of the people who worship them. They serve speechless idols, but what does God say about himself? Verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The one serves silent idols. The other serves the God that calls everybody else to be silent before him. Now, in this third and final chapter of, of Habakkuk that we're not going to spend a lot of time with, but I want to summarize it for us this morning. Uh, Habakkuk goes to God in prayer a third time. Although this time, after hearing what God says, God's answer, he's no longer complaining. He's no longer even questioning how God can do what he is doing. This time he's praising God for his splendor, verse 3, for his almighty power, in verse 4, for his great acts of judgment and deliverance in the past, including the Exodus, verses four, 5 through 15. He spends most of the chapter kind of rehearsing, you know, thinking about, bringing to mind all God's mighty acts of deliverance in the past, how God has raised up enemies in the past and cast them back down and been faithful to his people. And so what does he say in verse 16? He's going to quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. In other words, God told me this is what he's going to do to, to the Chaldeans eventually. I may not see it. Uh, it's not going to be maybe happen on the time frame I would prefer, but I'm going to quietly wait for the day of trouble for God's recompense to come upon those who harmed his people. And what does that mean? He, he learned the lesson of verse 4. He was living by his faith, trusting in his God. How great was Habakkuk's faith? I mean, think about, I mean, you know, uh, the old saying, like, you know, you really wouldn't want to know what's going to happen on any given day because you might be afraid you got to bed in the morning. You know, some of us 
we kind of think to ourselves, you know, I wish God would just tell me, you know, everything that's going to happen. I wish I knew ahead of time everything was. You probably wouldn't on some days, right? Habakkuk asks, and so God answers. You know, I'm not so sure Habakkuk really wanted to know what he heard, you know, about, about the Chaldeans coming in. But after all of God told him, what was Habakkuk's final response at the very end of chapter 3, the very end of the book? This is, this is Habakkuk's faith coming out in a picture of childlike trust and faith in God. He prays to God, confesses his faith, his trust in him, and he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the, of the olive oil, or excuse me, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. He was able to look and see what God was going to do because God had showed it to him. And yet he was able to trust in God and praise God. Even if nothing goes well for him, he's saying, even if I have to live through this, these times of trouble before the times of trouble get cast back upon the enemies of God's people, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of my salvation because God the Lord was his strength. That's, that's, that's faith. That's, that's the righteous man, the just living by faith. Faith is able to rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation even in times of trouble. For it's even then, maybe more than other times, that we can know that God the Lord is our strength. But what about the New Testament? What does it have to say about Habakkuk 2.4? What does... You know, think about, think about the context. I hope this helped. This is why I brought it up. Think about all we just looked at from the book of this overview of Habakkuk. Do you see now why Paul brought this up? The context of Habakkuk's plea, his complaints, and God's answer about the righteous living by faith. This is why Paul saw it as a proof of the gospel of Christ and of justification by faith alone. It's why he quotes it twice in his epistles, in Romans 1.17 and in Galatians Chapter 3 in Romans 1, 16 and 17, this is what he says. This is the theme of the book of Romans. He's summarizing the whole book at the beginning. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith. As it is written, and here he quotes part of that verse, the righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by faith. Now, when he says there in verse 17, as it is written, what's he saying? He's saying this, that I'm about to, to quote from the Old Testament, proves what I just said about the gospel being the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Because why? Why is the gospel the power of God to salvation for everyone, regardless if they're Jew or Gentile? Why is the gospel of Christ the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, because, he says, in it, the righteousness of God, in other words, the righteousness that comes from God, is revealed from faith to faith. The NIV, I think, puts it actually pretty well here when it says, by faith from first to last. Paul's quoting Habakkuk 2.4 in context very much properly. He's saying, when Habakkuk says, the just shall live by his faith, He's saying your whole life will be characterized by faith. And so Paul says it's from faith, what? From first to 
last, or literally from faith to faith. We don't start by faith and then go off to something else. Our whole life is one of trusting in the Lord for his righteousness and trusting in him for his will for our lives. John Calvin writes of of Paul's use of this verse in Romans 1. He says, he, that is Paul, he proves the righteousness of faith. In other words, the righteousness that comes by faith. by the authority of the prophet Habakkuk, who in predicting the destruction of the proud, adds at the same time that the just shall live by his faith. What, what separates the wicked from the just is faith in Christ. That's what makes God account someone righteous is faith in Christ. How can a sinner be counted righteous in the eyes of a holy God? Uh, by us it's impossible it's only by faith in Christ the one righteous one and Paul is saying it's always been that way the just and when he says the just shall live by faith he's saying the justified person the one who's counted righteous in God's sight is the person who lives by his or her faith and so the just person lives by his faith faith in Christ again it's not just something a one time thing at the beginning of the Christian life it's something that We live by faith from beginning to end. The way to real life in this life and the way to real blessing in this life in times of trouble is the way of faith. Trusting in God, being able to rejoice in the Lord in all things. And it's also the way that leads to eternal life as well. The just shall live eternally by his faith in Christ and by the righteousness given to him of God from Christ by that faith. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this For your scriptures, again, we thank you for the way your gospel is woven all through your word from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. We thank you for this little part of a verse tucked away in Habakkuk chapter 2 that teaches us that we know by the words of the apostles in the New Testament that this is about the, the free justification, the act of your grace in justifying sinners, in forgiving us our sins and counting us righteous in your sight only by the righteousness of Christ himself imputed to us by faith. And we ask that you would give us grace to live according to our faith, that we would live by by our faith in Christ in this life. And we thank you that we will also live uh, by faith in Christ, uh, that that brings us eternal life in him as well. And we pray that you would give us grace to be in this town. And we pray that this the message of your gospel, the gospel of the free justification of sinners in Christ, that that would go out uh, here in our town of Ramona, that you might bring revival here in our town and in our land as well. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.